First Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 uh, through 10. And we're going to look tonight at the model church. The model church. <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 10. Where Paul writes, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every, every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we not, need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, last Wednesday evening, we began studying the beginnings of this church, and we looked together in Acts chapter 17 and saw how this church was initially planted. There Luke tells us that Paul ministered in the synagogue in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days, which might make us think that his duration in that city was a mere two to three weeks, and then he was off. But actually, uh, that's very unlikely. The reference to the three Sabbath days in Acts 17 is specific to his ministry to the Jews in that city and to his time in the synagogue. Most Bible scholars agree that Paul probably spent somewhere between three to six months in the city of Thessalonica. And the clues to that fact are seen throughout the scriptures. For a start, we know that he received at least two financial gifts from the churches in Macedonia. The church at Philippi is said to have ministered to him once and again. And so whilst he was uh, ministering to the Thessalonians, these gifts would have been, uh, would have been sent. And, and whilst not impossible that he uh, should, that, uh, that they should send such gifts within weeks of each other, it seems unlikely that uh, given that they were traveling on foot, that they would have made two 100 mile, uh, return journeys, uh, over a course of just two to three weeks. Not only that, but Paul stayed long enough to set up a business in Thessalonica, something that would take longer than two or three weeks, and he plied his trade there as a tent maker. If you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. And also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 7, he again alludes to this fact that he labored in that city, that he conducted business in Thessalonica. He says, For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, for nothing, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And when we get uh, into this, uh, into these epistles, we'll see that there was some in the church of Thessalonica who refused to work, who were work shy, uh, and were so on the basis of their uh, anticipation of the second coming. And so Paul was very careful uh, to point out that he himself had worked whilst at the same time uh, teaching them pertaining to the coming of the Lord. Furthermore, he seems to have been very familiar with these people, uh, so much so that in his opening address to the church, he refers to himself simply as Paul. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he employed no title of office. He doesn't refer to himself as the Apostle Paul. And so, although this is truly an inspired piece of writing, the Holy Ghost being its ultimate author, nevertheless, Paul is not writing it in an official way, in the same sense to which he wrote, for example, to the Romans or the Corinthians or the Galatians or the Ephesians or the Colossians. Uh, In each one of those uh, epistles and others, likewise, he refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ or as a servant of Jesus Christ. So there's a familiarity here. There's a friendliness here that probably wouldn't have existed if he had just been there two weeks and moved on. He would have still had that formality uh, with the people in his writing. There's another factor that we should consider as we open to this book, and that is here is a book that makes no Old Testament references. Now that's really important. It alludes to no Old Testament stories or scriptures. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that the people to whom he writing he was writing were not primarily Jewish, but they were primarily Gentiles. And if we accept that Acts chapter 17 was the sum total of his experience in Thessalonica, we'd have to explain how it is that Paul had enough time to minister to the city's Gentiles. In other words, if he was just there two to three weeks ministering to the Jews in the synagogue, and then he moved on, how in the world did such a Gentile church come into existence? So it would appear that Paul stayed much longer than the three Sabbath days that are referenced in Acts chapter 17. But what happened after his departure? Well, you remember from our reading in Acts 17 last week that following the uprising of the Jewish community in Thessalonica, Paul fled to the city of Berea. And uh, that was his next stop. There he met up with Timothy. Timothy had been left at Philippi. He left Philippi and he came uh, directly to meet Paul uh, at uh, at Berea. And uh, again, they enjoyed fruitful ministry there. But being pursued by the Thessalonian Jews 
from Thessalonica into Berea, uh, Paul then made his way to Athens. So he continues moving in a southerly direction. He comes through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then right down into Athens and ultimately into uh, Corinth. So what happened then was that Timothy was sent up to Thessalonica. He was sent back to check on the church at Thessalonica. Why was Timothy sent? Well, he hadn't been there yet. He was not a familiar figure uh, to those who were persecuting the church. And so he could come in undercover, as it were, and nobody would know who he was, and he could check with the church there without putting anybody in danger or risking anybody's property uh, or lives. And so Paul moves from then moves from Athens to Corinth, where Silas and Timothy come and they catch up with him, uh, bringing him news of the Thessalonian uh, church. And the news is good. The Thessalonians are going on for the Lord. They're continuing faithful despite their persecution and prompting Paul then to write to these believers in that city, uh, both to encourage them as well as to address some areas of doctrine with them and to, to answer some of the questions that they had, both doctrinally and practically. In the words of one writer, what follows here is not a theological treatise, but a real letter arising out of a situation in which the apostle and his friends find themselves. Now, just as in our day, there is a certain form to letter writing. So it was in Greco-Roman culture. You know, we begin a letter, uh, dear sir, dear madam, or dear John, or whatever the name is. We end it, depending on the type of letter it is, yours faithfully, yours sincerely. There's a form that presumably we've all been taught at school as to how to construct a letter. So it was with ancient times. And uh, we have that form right here in verse 1 uh, with the salutation of Paul in the opening, uh, in the opening verse, verse 1. I'm having problems with this again. Okay. All right. So, um, before we before we get to that salutation, let's look at the outline. All right, the outline of this chapter. All right. So, what we're going to see as we go through this chapter is five things. Number one, it is we're looking at an energetic church in verse three. Uh, in verse four, we see an elect uh, church. In uh, verse uh, verses five uh, and seven to two seven, an exemplary church. Uh, verse 8, we see an evangelistic uh, church. And then in verse 9, we see an expectant church. That's where we're going to go in this chapter. Now, let's look at the salutation in verses 1 and 2. Notice Paul writes, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our uh, prayers. Now, let's have a look at this salutation. It, it contains, first of all, three statements and then a thanksgiving. And the first statement is just Paul's name. It identifies the writer. You know, when, when we write a letter... The name of the writer comes at the end of the letter. So sometimes if you're like me, you know, and you get a personal letter, you know, before you read the content of the letter, you'll go to the end and see who wrote the letter. 
And so then you go back and read the content of the letter. Well, people in Bible times were smarter than that. They told you first line who was writing the letter. And then you got the content of the letter. So here we have Paul's name. And as I say, it's interesting. He doesn't refer to himself as an apostle. He doesn't refer to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ, as he does in many of the previous epistles in our Bibles. If you go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, he'll say it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. A very official approach as he opens the epistle to the Romans. To the Corinthians, he writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Uh, To the Galatians, he writes, Paul, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. These are official addresses. He is laying down a stamp of authority. He's making the point that he has the power and the authority of Christ to write these things. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says to the Ephesians, by the will of God to the church which uh, which to the saints, sorry, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, In Philippians, Paul and Timotheus, the servant of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. Paul, he says in Colossians, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother. So over and over again, he says the same thing to all of these churches and all of these epistles. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. And then we get to Thessalonians, and he just writes, Paul. And so it's first name terms. It's, it's all rather friendly. It's rather informal. You know, I remember many years ago bumping into a couple of young Mormon missionaries on the doorstep. I was doing some door-to-door evangelism, and uh, they came to the doorstep as I was there. And we got into a, a little bit of a debate, as you do, and uh, the, uh, the missionaries asked me my name. So I told them my name was David. And I asked them their names, knowing they wouldn't give me their names. And the one says, well, I'm Elder Smith. And the other one says, I'm Elder Barry, or whatever his name was. He says, I'm Elder something. And uh, I says, yeah, yeah, I get that, but what's your names? And they repeated it. Well, I'm Elder Smith, and I'm Elder Barry. And, uh, and I said, oh, well, you know. And, and I said, so you're not going to tell me your names. You don't have first names? Didn't your mother use a different name for you? And they said, well, she did, but, uh, but uh, we, we're not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to call us Elder. And at that point, I said to them, well, my name is David, but you're going to have to call me Pastor. You see what they were doing? They were trying to pull rank uh, by the usage of a name. Uh, they used to have a title rather. And Paul is pulling rank in those other, apost- in those other epistles, not in a, a malicious way like those Mormon missionaries, but he's letting those churches know that he holds the highest office uh, in the church, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here he comes to the Thessalonians. He's quite free and, and quite familiar, and he's happy to use simply the term Paul, his name. That's his name. And so he's speaking with them almost as a friend with friend. There's no sense in which he's trying to uh, get one up on them or pull rank over them or he's writing from a position of office. And then he includes Silvanus and Timotheus in the opening address. And that doesn't mean that they co-wrote the epistle. 
You know, sometimes you read in, in commentaries that they uh, co-wrote this epistle, uh, but it, it simply means he's including them in some of his thoughts. Though undoubtedly Paul was the senior figure, he's the primary man in this team, the primary figure of authority, uh, his missionary, missionary methodology was always one of teamwork. He worked in teams, uh, and he had a team ministry. So it's possible that Silvanus acted in a secretarial role, much as he did uh, with the Apostle Peter in First Peter. Uh, and uh, in that sense, he's included in this opening verse. But make no mistake about it, this is Paul's epistle. Paul wrote First and Second uh, Thessalonians. And this is equally true when we see him using the plural we in chapter 3 of First Thessalonians. Look there in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Now, he uses the term we, but if you go back to Acts chapter 17, there's only one person who goes to Athens and who is left at Athens, and that's the Apostle Paul. Silvanus or Silas and Timothy don't meet him in Athens. They bypass Athens and they rejoin with him in Corinth. So Paul alone was in Athens. So why is he using the word we here? Well, it's kind of a royal we. You know, like the queen sometimes uses the word we when she really means herself. She's speaking on her own behalf, but we call that the royal uh, we. And so Paul likewise uses the term we, but he's actually referencing his own self. The second statement identifies there not the writers of the uh, the writer of the epistle, but the addressees of the epistle unto the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's no question but that the believers there were only but a few months into their Christian experience into their church experience, if you like, when Paul refers to them as a church. A church is an assembly of believers. That's what a church is. And there was an assembly of believers gathering in Thessalonica. And even though these were relatively young Christians, Paul still recognized them as a church of Jesus Christ. That's what they were. So in this sense, Paul addresses them specifically as a local church, Unto the church of the Thessalonians. But then notice he adds to this something else. In God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He broadens the address. In his first statement he highlights their geographical position. That's where they were physically located. In Thessalonica. In the second statement he identifies their spiritual position. That's where they were, as indeed where we are, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their spiritual standing. And so in doing that, Paul connects them with the wider church of God, with the entire body of Christ, and brings in the idea that there is a much broader understanding of the church. It's not just the Thessalonians who were in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, but all believers are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he connects them to the greater body of believers. Also, this statement, and I want you to think about this, is an, is an apostolic affirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this. He equates the Lord Jesus Christ with God the Father. 
unto the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is seen in that statement as co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal with the Father. And this connecting of the Father to the Son is one of the recurrent themes of these epistles. Look in, uh, look in chapter, uh, chapter 3 in verse 11. <clears throat> chapter 3 in verse 11. Now God himself and our, and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So in three verses he connects Father and Son uh, twice in those short, uh, those short words. In, uh, in, in the uh, end of the book, chapter 5 and verse 8. Now I've misreferenced this, I'm sure. It's verse, um, goodness, I'm sorry I've missed up, missed up my reference here. No, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to move on. Uh, let's, let's look at the, the next chapter, the next book, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1 has the same, exact same salutation. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then in verse 2, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you continue on down to verse uh, 8. He talks about inflaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that's the Father, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in him, according to the grace of our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Again, connecting the Son with the Father, the Father with the Son. Chapter 3 and verse 5. And the Lord direct your hearts unto the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So over and over again throughout this book, he makes this equation between God the Father and God the Son. And he doesn't present one without presenting the other and showing them as co-equal and co-existent and co-eternal one with the other. The third formal statement in his salutation is, is again just a customary greeting. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he makes that connection uh, between Father and Son. Grace is the standard Greek form of greeting. And yet when we understand it in a Christian context, it brings us back to Calvary, doesn't it? You can't think of grace and not think of Calvary. And so he's reminding us just by that one word that we're connected with the cross. And uh, we're reminded that as believers we are beneficiaries of God's grace and we are the recipients of his uh, peace. Peace is the standard Hebrew word, again, that is a greeting, shalom. You you'd probably know that word. It speaks not merely of the absence of conflict, uh, but it speaks of the prosperity that peace allows. So when a, when a Jewish person says shalom to you, he's not just saying hello, he's granting a blessing to you. And he's, he's, he's praying that, that uh, you would receive all that would come uh, as a consequence of such a peace as he pronounces upon you. So it wishes wholeness upon the recipient. 
and that they should enjoy all the blessings that come through through that which peace affords. So the statement here is grace unto you, bring us back to Christ, and peace, telling us that we should have everything that Christ and God has for us in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he equates one with the other. Now let's look at the next statement. In verse 2, you have a thanksgiving. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now that's a beautiful statement. Why is it a beautiful statement? Because these are baby Christians. You know, when you think about it, I have a friend, and I'm not, I'll not name him. Someday he may come here and preach, and I'll not put him on the spot. But I have a friend, and, he, and he's a pastor, and he, and he says that, you know, he goes and sees all, all the babies he ever sees all look the same to him. But he has to say they're all beautiful. So when he visits mothers in the hospital, he says, no matter how ugly the baby is, <laughs> he has to tell the mother, that's a, be- that's a beautiful baby. That's a lovely baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> in a new church where there are baby Christians, I'm pretty sure there were some things going on. In fact, we'll see there were some things going on that weren't altogether pleasing to the Lord or weren't altogether attractive to the, to the faith. And yet with all, Paul thanks the Lord for them, for all of them, for those who are doing well as well as those who are doing not so well. We give thanks to God always for you all. How encouraging it must have been to those new Christians to know that not only were they remembered, but they were prayed for and that they were continually prayed for by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And the prayer was not in the first instance a prayer of request. It was in the first instance a prayer of thanksgiving. He thanks the Lord for them. And that phrase, we give thanks, give thanks, is, a, is in the Greek a present tense verb, which means that it is a daily practice. This wasn't just a, a one-off prayer as they sat down, as Paul sat down to write this epistle, and he said, oh, you know, I'm going to thank the Lord for the Thessalonians. No, every day he was thanking the Lord for the Thessalonians. Every day he was making mention of them in their prayers. So what did they give thanks for when they brought the Thessalonian church before the Lord? Well, it's those things that we highlighted in our outline as, the, as this chapter goes on, that they were an energetic church, that they were a, an elect church, that they were an exemplary church, that they were an evangelistic church, that they were an expectant church. And we want to think about each of these uh, this evening as we think about the Thessalonian church as a model church. It's a model church in this chapter. And, you know, we would do well to aspire as a church uh, onto uh, this particular church in the way that Paul addresses it. Uh, Notice in verse 3, it is an energetic church. He says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith uh, and love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Now, essentially... Uh, Paul uh, and the others give thanks, first of all, for three primary aspects of the Thessalonian uh, church. Okay, uh, First of all, he gives thanks to, for their work of faith. Then he gives thanks for their labor of love. And then he gives thanks for their uh, patience of hope. Now, bearing in mind 
This is one of Paul's earliest epistles. Remember, he wrote it about 51 AD. He had only written the book of Galatians before this. There were no other uh, 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 Pauline epistles uh, throughout the uh, New Testament scriptures available to anyone at this point in time. Bearing in mind that this is one of the earliest epistles that Paul writes, it's striking that right, right from the off, he makes mention of these three qualities, faith and love and hope. Faith and love and hope. This is one of his favorite themes. Look in uh, chapter 5 and verse 8. Uh, I know we're on the right verse here. Chapter 5 and verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. If you go back to Romans chapter 5 in your Bible, Romans chapter 5, and you see this recurrent theme throughout Paul's writings. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, And patience, uh, experience, and experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, uh, which is given unto us. Uh, so again, he's, he's speaking of patience, he's speaking of uh, hope in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great love chapter uh, toward the end of that epistle. We get to verse 13. And he says, And there now abideth these, now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity, love, faith, and hope, and love. At Galatians chapter 5, likewise, he touches on this same theme. Galatians chapter 5, and if you look at verses 5 and 6, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And again in Colossians chapter 1, he comes back to this theme yet again in verses 4 and 5. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Faith and hope and love. Those are his constants throughout these epistles. Now, I want you to go with me to the book of Revelation because in Revelation chapter 2, you have the first of the Lord Jesus' writings to the seven churches of Asia Minor, to the church at Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus are also referenced as having faith and love and hope. And I want you to notice a distinction between the Savior's address to the church at Ephesus and Paul's address to the church at Thessalonica. Notice that the Lord says in verse 2, He says to them, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Now notice that those same things are present. You know, we talked about your work of faith your labor of love, your patience of hope. Here we see the same things. Work, labor, patience. Now notice the distinction. As the Lord addresses the Ephesians, he simply touches on those, those, uh, uh, those aspects of their faith and of their love and of their hope, their works, their labor, their patience. But when we come to the Thessalonians, we find that there, that there was a work of faith, a labor of love, a patience of hope. 
And so there's, there's a difference, a distinction between these two churches. The Ephesians had works and labor and patience. What was the Lord's complaint with the church at Ephesus? They had left their first love. So they were going through the motions. There was works, but they weren't, they weren't works of faith. There was love, but it wasn't, uh, sorry, there was labor, but it wasn't a labor of love. There was patience, but it wasn't the patience based upon hope. And so we find that the Thessalonians were motivated by faith and love and hope. Now Paul speaks about your work of faith. Now it's often said that Paul and James are at odds with one another. You probably have heard that said or read that somewhere. You know that that Paul uh, said that salvation is by faith. James suggests that salvation is by works. James suggests no such thing. That's not true. But nevertheless, some people try to suggest that. uh, And they suggest that the two men are at loggerheads. That there's a difference between them in their understanding of salvation. But actually, if you study James carefully, along with the writings of Paul, you'll find that both, both convey that works are the outcome of faith. Works are the outcome of faith. You see, faith, as well as love and hope, are intangibles. What do I mean by that? I mean they are immaterial qualities. I can say to you, I have great faith. So let me, let me just say that to you. I have great faith. Now let me ask you a question. Do I have great faith? You don't know, do you? You can't tell whether I have great faith. I might tell my wife that I love her. I probably should tell her that. At least once a year. I might tell my wife that I love her, but how does she know that I love her? I might tell someone I have hope, but how is my hope seen? How is it materialized? And this is the point that we're making here. True faith produces the goods. It brings forth works. Theirs wasn't just faith. There was a work to their faith. Your work of faith. Same as what James was talking about in James chapter 2. He says, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. He says, my, my faith lives itself out. That's what he's saying. Then he gives thanks for their labor of love. That's the second thing I want you to see in verse 3. Now, this is a phrase that we employ in the, in the English language to describe some unpaid work that is done as a passion. You know, where somebody has a personal passion, a personal interest, and they have engaged in a labor of love. And, uh, you know, a few months back we had the, the vintage car rally. Now, when everybody came into the car park with their various vehicles and you got out and you chatted with those people about their cars and their motorcycles and their tractors and their boats, um, you could tell it was a labor of love. You know, nobody paid them to fix those old vehicles. Nobody paid them to go and hunt down the parts. Nobody paid them to spend hours and end in a garage somewhere 
putting it all together and then polishing it all up. You know, there was one fellow, and I, and I went out there and chatted with him. And uh, man alive, that guy had, he even had green shield stamps in his car. I mean, that's how detailed he was. He went, you know, he, he had, some, poor Matthew has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> None whatsoever. None. It, believe me, Matthew, you don't want to know. But, but, but this was something, you know, way back in the day. You used to save these wee green shield stamps and you could exchange them for goods. And, and uh, this man had a book, a wad of green, green shield stamps in his car. He had all kinds of little details in the car that belonged to the era from which the car came. And as I discussed the vehicle with him, it was evident this was a labor of love. No detail was missing. You know, it may be a vintage car. You know, it may be something else that you, have, you, know, that you are interested in that's a labor of love for you. Um, you know, I used to live next door to a man, and his house was his labor of love. I mean, he painted that house almost every day. Seemed to me, anyway. He even painted the drive. I mean, I was like, what kind of man paints his drive? <laughs> but he painted his drive. He came out once a year, painted his drive. And, it, and his house was immaculate. Made my house look bad. But that was a labor of love. We used to live across the street from a man. A young man who evidently got his first car, had his first car, and that car was his love. You say, how do you know it was his love? Because he washed it and polished it and vacuumed it literally every day. Every single day. Even in the rain. He washed his car in the rain. And I used to look out and think, what is wrong with him? There must be air getting in. You know, now, if, if, you know, if you know me, I wash my car, if, if you're lucky, once a week. I might wash it maybe once every 10 days or so. I've been washing it quite a bit around these country roads in recent days. But, but you, you know, it's not something that I would worry about day in, day out. But for somebody who's a, who, for whom their car counts, it's, it's something really important to them, that they love it. Well, that love is seen by their labor in that particular area. Now, this word labor indicates a toiling, indeed working to the point of exhaustion, and that because of love. As one writer puts it, it is a driving, motivating force in the heart of the believer who loves the Lord. And because he loves the Lord, he is willing to labor. He is willing to work where it is difficult, and he is willing to bear the burden. Now, we've all heard that old joke. That pastors only work one day a week. Haven't we heard that? David, I'm sure you heard that joke a few times. You know what? Every time somebody tells me that joke, it just kills me. <laughs> I think to myself, that is the funniest joke I have ever heard. Unfortunately, I've had to hear it almost every day for the last 40 years. But nevertheless, I hear that joke, and uh, you know what? And, and it is a joke. Hopefully, it's a joke. <laughs> um, it's not a reality. Uh, because I suspect that most of you know that in reality, not just the pastor, but the elders, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, other people serving in other areas of the church, find that church work takes up a lot of our time and a lot of our energy. Uh, and you know, if you're anything like me, sometimes you think to yourself, what did I do before I was a Christian? <laughs> you, know, you just get the bed at night, you're just flopping. <laughs> you think, what, you know, 
what, what, do, you know, what does the world do with their day? Because, you know, there's maybe a particular time when we're especially busy, maybe at Christmas there, or maybe at Easter, or a holiday Bible club, or some occasion, and you just are so exhausted. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what the Thessalonians engaged in. For them, church wasn't a ritual. For them, serving Christ wasn't just something that had to be done. It was a labor of love. They loved the Lord. They loved serving the Lord. They loved the church of the Lord. Thirdly, he gives thanks for their patience of hope. That is their constancy, their steadfastness in the face of great trial and difficulties. Again, as one writer puts it, it is the spirit which can bear things, not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope. And what was their blazing hope? Here's what it was. It was the blessed hope of the Lord's return to which this book alludes time and time again. Let's go to uh, chapter 5, for example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 8. It says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and the hope of salvation. Now, notice what that hope is defined as. Verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're alive at his coming or we are physically dead at his coming, we should live together with him. So the thing that stirred these people to, the, to patience of hope, the thing that kept them going with a steely resignation, despite the daily difficulties that they were faced with, was the prospect that the Lord might come. That was their motivating grace. So they were an energetic church, And then I want to say to you in verse 4, they were an elect church. Knowing brethren loved your election of God. Now, for many people, and maybe you're one of them, the very word election, you know, strikes fear into the heart. And uh, maybe, you know, we know it it provokes great debate among God's people. Uh, As long as I've been a Christian, people have debated election one way or the other. There are those who on one side suggest that salvation is entirely a sovereign act beyond the will of God. They, beyond the will of man, sorry. They believe that God uh, has elected unconditionally certain people to be saved, that he sovereignly regenerates them, and then having caused them to be born again without any input of their will whatsoever, they are then gifted faith to, to be exercised and to believe the gospel. Okay, that's one position. The other position is that, you know, salvation, the act of salvation falls entirely within the remit of human will. And so a person can just, you know, pick and choose Christ, so to speak, at will. Personally, I think the truth lies somewhere in between. 
For sure God must act. And no matter how well a man preaches, no matter how passionate he is, no matter how careful he is with the scriptures, unless the Spirit of God deals with the soul of a sinner, he cannot be saved. There has to be spirit conviction. God must deal with him. And, and unless that happens, uh, you know, that's, there's not going to be a true conversion. So that's something that will not happen. Uh, that's something that's outside of the preacher's control. That's purely to do with, with God and God's will. Uh, and, and, and yet on the other hand, we know that men are commanded to repent and to believe the gospel. So that then means that salvation must be somewhat within the realm of their will. So even if God brings a man under conviction, that man still has the opportunity to reject the conviction he's under. To refuse to bow the knee to Christ. He still has that capability within him. God will not entirely override his will. In other words, God doesn't push anybody through the door of heaven. Now, men will argue about this until kingdom come. Okay? Here's what I want you to know. When we get to heaven, you'll find out that I was right. Okay? <laughs> of course, I'm joking. But that's the point. You know, people will argue this and argue this and argue this and argue this. You know what the real tragedy of this is? That some people will spend their entire Christian life trying to win other Christian people over to their particular position whilst not putting nearly the same degree of energy in trying to win lost people to the Lord. There's the real tragedy in it. Now, as I see it, divine election is directly related to God's foreknowledge. We are, you know, we we are limited, all of us, by space and time. But God dwells outside of space and time. He inhabits eternity. There's no limitation to God. And, And so based upon what he knows, he makes certain choices. Not, I believe, in choosing who will be saved and who won't be saved, but rather in foreknowing who will respond to his conviction, his convicting power, knowing who will be saved, he then has elected them unto sanctification and to service. You see, when you elect somebody, you elect them to do something. If you elect a member of parliament, you elect him, hopefully, to go to parliament, take up his seat, and represent you in that forum. If you elect someone to be an elder in the church, you don't just elect them to bear that title. You're electing them to serve the church and to serve the Lord as they're serving the church. So the Lord, I believe, elects people to service and to sanctification And how can we tell if one is the elect of God? Well, only by the kind of outworking of the Spirit that Paul has already identified and will now go on to speak further on. God had done a work in these people. How did he know they were elect? Because it was evident in their lives. 
There was a work of faith. There was a labor of love. There was a, a patience of hope. There was a real difference made in their lives. Things had changed since Jesus came in. That's how we know they're elect. That's how we know we're elect. Now, we've got about halfway through this chapter and we're going to complete the rest of it, Lord willing, next time we're together. But for the moment, we're going to rest here and think about what we've heard just this evening so far. How the Paul thanked God for this young church. How their faith produced good works. How their service was not driven by a spirit of fear or legalism, but by love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And how that their hope birthed patience within them as they waited for the Lord and as they busied themselves in his service to the point of exhaustion. And all of this because God had chosen them of all people to serve him in the region of Macedonia. Now what a challenge this is to us as a church here at points pass because the Lord has chosen us to serve him here in this village now you're all looking at me like I'm not sure I'm happy about that but that's what the Lord has done (laughs) what a tremendous privilege God has placed us here in this little corner of Northern Ireland to win those people on our doorstep and in the surrounding communities To the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a tremendous encouragement to us. You know he wants us to to express our faith. In a way that impacts those people around us. To make his cause the labor of our love. Just as I looked out the window and saw this fellow. And said he must really love his car. To be out washing it every day. Even in the rain. Hopefully people will look out and see us. And say those people must really love the Lord. They must really love God. They must really love their church. They must really love what they're doing. As we watch them. And as we observe them. And as we hear from them. And as we meet them. And as we engage them. And hopefully also we should look at this and say that the Lord has allowed us to express our hope in Christ. And that will produce a fruit of patience in us as we labor for him and await his appearing. The example of the Thessalonians comes echoing down 2,000 years of church history to us. And may God help us to replicate it. We're going to leave it there And next week we're going to see that they were an exemplary church and an evangelistic church and an expectant church. All right, we want to go to the Lord in prayer uh, this evening. And uh, remember those who have need. uh, uh, Brother uh, Martin told me the other day that 